Amen. Amen. So uh, we're going to continue in Proverbs. As you see in your notes, we're dealing with discipline. I think since Jonathan brought up the subject last week, it's a good segue into another major theme. And so I'll head off a lot of the questions. People ask, how was your vacation? It was great. Uh, I feel physically and um, mentally rested, and it, it, but it is good to be back. And uh, dealing with discipline, I was very disciplined on my trip to, uh, we were close to the mountains, hiked in the mountains almost every day, worked out pretty much every day. But then we found this amazing bakery that had the best donuts I've ever had. And so my, I was disciplined in one area, but the discipline went out the window in the other one. And I was pretty much just hiking to, to, to make my, my donut intake equal. Um, but that's not the type of discipline we're talking about this morning. Anyways, you know that vacation calories don't count. Um, so the kind of discipline we are dealing with this morning is something that our flesh and our human nature and the world around us does not like. We don't like the idea, if we're honest, that we might be wrong, that we might need correction, that we are subject to an authority greater than ourselves who might give us consequences that might be painful. I think so much of our society today is consumed with trying to minimize discipline. Anything that may be uncomfortable, anything that may try to correct us, anything that may challenge our autonomy, us being a law unto ourselves. We raise children thinking that everything they do is right and wonderful, and this is why the world is wicked the way it is today. So one of the things about discipline is it attacks the defiant will of children and the latent pride of adults. And so this type of discipline, this corrective discipline, and so what we're going to flesh out today, if I will give a very brief uh, definition of what discipline is. Discipline is corrective instruction for life and godliness. Discipline is corrective instruction for life and godliness. And the scriptures give us a very different picture of discipline than what the world around us may say or what, what we may want discipline to be. And initially, when we hear the scriptures speak about discipline, it's hard for us because it fights against our very flesh. Because biblical discipline, even though we don't like the word discipline, even though we don't like it applied to us, it is always done in love and because of love. Always. Good parents and mature Christians know how loving it is to correct defiance and to put what is out of place in conformance with godliness. So here's the other thing. Discipline's always done in love, and discipline is most helpful in the context of loving relationship. Discipline is most helpful in the context of loving relationship. Meaning, you can't discipline someone and have it take effect if they don't know you and you don't know them. And so, before we get into Proverbs, I want to set the biblical foundation to understand discipline. Uh, we're going to run through a series of verses from the Old Testament. This is very consistent 
in God's language to his people. I want to bring up a few things that's going to help us in our time in Proverbs and when we eventually land in Hebrews. So first, Deuteronomy 8.5. Deuteronomy, often called the heart of the Old Testament, the law given a second time, the command to obey and to circumcise your heart. Look at God's motivation here in Deuteronomy 8.5. If you have your Bibles, uh, read along with me. There's Bibles in front of you. If you're in the back, there's Bibles on the table, uh, but these will all be on the screen as well. Deuteronomy 8.5 says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciples his son, the Lord your God, or excuse me, disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Notice this is relational. As a father to a son, I, your heavenly father, you, my sons, I discipline you. Why? Because I love you. That'll come up later. But know this in your heart. Because Biblical discipline is not just behavioral correction. Yes, that's needed, but this is heart work. First and foremost, obedience begins in the heart. Uh, Next, I want to look at Psalm 94. Psalm 94 takes it a step further, beginning in verse 8. Psalm 94, verse 8. Understand, O dullest of the people... Fools, when will you be wise? Sounds a lot like Proverbs. I love this picture of God here. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? Essentially, who you think planted that thing on the side of your head that takes in information? The one who put it in there, you don't think he can hear too? He who formed the eye, does he not see? What are you, who do you think you're fooling, essentially? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? Notice the connection here between discipline and knowledge, discipline and instruction. It's parallel to he who teaches man knowledge. He's the Lord. He knows the thoughts of man. They are but a breath. Blessed is the man who you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. All morning long, we're going to see the parallel between teaching or between discipline and instruction. Why? The Lord disciplines and blesses those to give him rest from the days of trouble. It will save you in this life and the life to come if the Lord disciplines you. Until a pit is dug for the wicked. Basically, until God judges everyone. So how long is discipline going to last? Until the final judgment. Get used to it. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. This is a sign of God's continued faithfulness. God blesses and disciplines a people for himself. Why? Because it is corrective instruction for life and godliness. And so discipline was often applied to Israel. Israel was often rebellion, and they might repent, or rebellious, and they might repent for a time. But it never lasted long. They ignored the Father's counsel that we dealt with in Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, again, this will be on the screen, verses 11 and 12, where the Father says to the Son, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him who he loves 
as a father, the son in whom he delights. It is loving and it is relational. But there's one other component. With God, discipline is always covenantal. Always loving, always relational, but God's discipline is done in covenant. Biblical discipline is always done in love. God's discipline is always done in covenant. He doesn't discipline the Egyptians, the Hittites, the Romans. He judges for sure, but discipline that is corrective and instructive and leading to godliness, this is unique for God's people. God's love for his people is shown in hesed. We've dealt with this word before. Covenant loyalty, steadfast love as it's often translated. And so we should not be surprised that in Jeremiah 31, before the promise of a new covenant coming, the Lord speaks of discipline. He speaks about restoring and bringing his people back to prominence and back to his favor. But notice how he's going to do it. And notice why they're in this exile, in in this difficulty. So Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your ears from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is a hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back from their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. What does Ephraim say? You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined. Like an untrained calf, bring me back that I may be restored. For you are the Lord my God. What is the result of the discipline? Verse 19, for after I turned away, I relented. Discipline and instruction is so that we repent, relent of our sin, turn from what our hearts love to what our hearts should love. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. Basically, you idiot. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Notice the relational covenantal connection here in verse 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Loving, relational, and covenantal. The picture here of Israel, Ephraim, being like an untrained calf. I wanted to look this up because I was fascinated by this this picture because I know nothing about training calves. So I went and looked up one of the most prestigious uh, show cattle associations. Didn't realize there was such a thing. But apparently when a young calf is born, he's like every other little boy who just bounces around and runs around and only stops and settles down when he's ready to eat. Other than that, he's kind of bounding everywhere and doesn't follow directions. But you know what was interesting? This this, uh, company that that you can uh, hire to come in and train your beef cattle to make them show worthy. He says, what are the first thing that we do in breaking a young calf? We build a relationship with it. Interesting. So he says, before we can break them down, we must build a relationship. Only once we build a relationship with this headstrong young calf 
Can we break down its own self-will and its own defiance so that we can build it up to make it show worthy? That is what the Lord does with us. We have all seen kids and adults who are not broken down, who have not been disciplined. They bound wherever they want, doing whatever they want, and they are not show worthy. But this is what the Lord wants. He wants to take these untrained calves and discipline them so that they relent, so that they turn, and so that they are worthy to bear his name and his image. All right, uh, one more dealing with uh, the greatest example of covenantal discipline, 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you're familiar with this, this is the covenant of, of David, or the Lord with David. And so the Lord makes many covenant promises. Uh, all of them find their fulfillment in one source. But I want you to notice an interesting part of this covenant. You know, there's something unique about David. He's the promised king. He's the lineage from which all kings should come through. And God makes a covenant with him that is partially fulfilled in one son, Solomon, but it's completely fulfilled in one son who's further off. Let's read this, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. Uh, I'm going to start reading verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. This is important. He shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Here's the relation again. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love has said here, my covenantal loyalty will never depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Who's the promised king? Who's the promised son? We should know this. We just sang about it a moment ago. The true and better David. Christ. This is why the genealogies and the gospels are important. He must come from the line of David. He must be rightly heir to the throne of Judah. Notice the association of Christ with discipline. Now, you may read this and think, when he sins, I will discipline him. Well, when did Christ sin? Any child who's been raised in a godly home knows that Jesus lived without sin. You should know that too. So what's being said here? Psalm 89 translates this for us. You can go back and read it later. But Psalm 89 says, when his children sin, I will discipline him. Here's how it's covenantal. He is our covenantal head. So when we sin, he stands in our place as our representative, and our sins become his. His righteousness becomes ours. And how is he disciplined? With the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Isaiah 43, he becomes, or 53, the suffering servant. He's crushed. For our iniquities. And his chastisement has brought our healing. These stripes in the rod of men, he was beaten by the, the discipline and punishment of men, but God was doing something spiritual and supernatural. Why? Notice, 
He may be disciplined, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. Here's why this covenant is so important. Because even in the discipline, it does not remove you as a place as son. Here's why it's so important that we're in Christ. Here's why it is so important that he is the head of our covenant, that our, uh, our communion with God and our reconciliation to God is not by any other means, but by the discipline of the only faithful son. So we should not think of ourselves above discipline. Christ did not think of himself above discipline. We should be thankful for it. Because if it were not for discipline, there would be no salvation. Let's pray and we'll walk through Proverbs. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you that you are a good God and you are so good that you want us to be good. But we are so sinful that the only way it happens is through our discipline. Lord, I pray you do some heart work this morning that we know that the discipline of the Lord is because of love. And if there is any in this room this morning who in their heart says, I don't need discipline, then I'm good enough, that I don't need to be broken down, Lord, show them that they are a liar. There is no hope apart from the discipline of the Lord. If Christ has not been disciplined for you, and you do not discipline us for your good, we are illegitimate sons. Lord, work in our hearts and our minds through your text. May we be encouraged that you love us enough to train us into your image. May your spirit work in our hearts and minds, and may we be, leave this place joyful of our salvation and fervent in our pursuit of godliness and praising you for your discipline. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, point number one, the path of discipline. So we're going to look at discipline in Proverbs. It kind of, uh, all along, we've been looking at the two paths, the one to life, the one to death. And so what we're going to see is that the, the way that you respond to discipline is going to show and prove which path you are on. And what's also at stake here is the son who brings the father and mother honor and the son who brings the father and mother shame. It shows what path you're on and what type of son you are. This is what's at stake in the book of Proverbs. Be a good son. Bring honor to your father and mother. Walk in the path of life. And so right along with that is he who takes discipline. So beginning, uh, all these verses should be in your notes. Maybe save one. Uh, verse 17 of chapter 10. Now remember, we dealt with all of the poems in chapters 1 through 9, and now we're going thematically in the individual Proverbs in chapters 10 through 30. Verse 17, whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life. It could not be more clear when we look at these two paths. But he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Uh, and then right along with that, there's a parallel in chapter 13, verse 1. I want to show that briefly. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Notice the connection between the wise son and the path. Um, the scoffer and the path to death. And, uh, so I, I want you to see what's, what's connected here. Instruction, correction, and discipline equals life. Rebellion, refusing to take rebuke, not listening to instruction equals death. 
and how you respond to this instruction discipline of the Lord is a litmus test for what is going on in your heart. And the father knows this, and he's setting this out for the son. Son, heed instruction, please, and live. Don't be like the rebellious who die. And here's the thing about the miserable. They love company. They want to walk astray, and they want to lead others astray. The rebellious are not content to be alone. And so this is why we must be on guard, and this is why discipline is important. We'll get into church discipline later. Because the path of life is that. It is a path of life. And there is one, only one other option, and that is a path to death. Uh, next verse is going to be chapter 12, verse 1. This is our theme verse. It's going to make some of you uncomfortable. Um, who There's like the uh, curse word dictionary, and then there's the Christian curse word dictionary. This one's going to offend some of you, and we're going to do it. Uh, verse 12, 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. It is a good biblical word, and I'm going to tell you why in a moment. In case you're having trouble reading between the lines, whoever loves disciplines loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. All right, this one's not just for children. This one's for adults. No child likes it, but neither do adults. But when you avoid discipline, when you reject it, when you hear discipline, when you, you hear correction and you keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, you are being stupid. What does this word mean in the Hebrew? The word here in English is strong because the Hebrew word is strong. It means senseless. It means beastly. It means you are acting like a dumb animal. You are made in the image of God and you are supposed to respond with someone who has who has, has thoughts and emotions and, and who can string a sentence together. Why are you acting like a dumb animal? That's what the writer here is saying. That is the person who does not take correction. Notice the connection here. If you love discipline, you love knowledge. Therefore, if you hate discipline, you hate knowledge. You're stupid. What's the Lord doing here? Remember I told you before, discipline is corrective instruction. There is an inseparable connection between instruction and discipline, as we're going to see this morning. Why? Isn't this how the Lord grows us and works in us? What does the Lord do in this? How stubborn are we? How often do we learn when things are going well? But when things are going difficult, what do we do? When we're having a hard time, when life seems particularly hard, what do we do? We pray more. We go to the scriptures more. You think that's by accident? That is God's design. His, his discipline leads to our instruction. I love what Spurgeon says about this. He says, you must have both the rod and the book to be instructed in the things of God. You need both the rod and the book. Discipline goes hand in hand with our doctrine. You can have all the right doctrine in the world, but if you are not disciplined by the Lord, it is useless. And the discipline, in such a strange way, we are weird people, Christians. The people of God are weird because in God's discipline, isn't that where we find the most peace and the provision of the Lord on the other side? Maybe not in the moment. 
But when the Lord disciplines us and we learn something we, we could not learn any other way, we're like, okay, Lord, I see. I was stupid. I was rebellious, and I needed this. The, right, uh, the uh, psalmist in Psalm 119, we read this this morning in our intercessory prayer, but I want to read it again. Psalm 119, verse 67. Notice here, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Back to chapter 10, verse 17. But now I keep your word. Lord, you afflicted me when I was being rebellious and I was, I was led astray. But guess what? You corrected me, now I keep your word. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. That is maturity, brothers and sisters, when you can say it is good for me that I was afflicted. It is good for me that the Lord disciplined me because he loved me. Because we think we are this great show bull who's just standing around, muscles poking out. We think we're it. God sees us, these little untrained calves who are bucking against the rope, and he wants to discipline us. So that we can become those show bulls. When I think about discipline, I think discipline is like sandpaper. Now, if wood could speak and you rub sandpaper on it, it would scream. Because sandpaper, especially the heavy grit, it is tearing the flesh, the surface of the wood off of itself. But what's the end result? The rough edges are smoothed out. The colors of the grain become more visible, and there's no splinters for anyone else. Sandpaper may hurt for a moment, but it won't kill you. You'll actually turn out more beautiful on the other side. This is what the discipline of the Lord is like. All right, let's go on. I want to look at chapter 15, verse 10. Chapter 15, verse 10. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Now, we just looked at the discipline that will not kill you. That's the discipline that leads to life. Sandpaper will not kill you, but fire will. There is a severe discipline that's not good. This discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Those who are continually insubordinate, those who are rebellious, who do not listen to the correction of the Lord, they won't die because of it. They're already dead. They show what path they're on because they forsake the way. What is the way? Here's the two paths. There's the path to life, the path to death. What is the way? We know there's only one way. There's only one truth. There's only one life. He who forsakes the way, Christ himself, is on the way to death. You think discipline's tough now? You don't want the discipline that leads to death. You think life is tough now? Strike out on your own way, and you will spend an eternity in difficulty you can never even imagine. This is why Christians discipline their kids. We want them to fear the Lord. We want them to hate evil. We want them to live. Jesus went to the cross for sin. 
The father disciplined his son for sin. You think he'll look lightly on ours? Children must know that there are consequences to sin. And in order for you to teach your children that, you must know that there are consequences to sin. You must know that there is a way that leads to death and there's a way that leads to life. And the same father who disciplined us, disciplined Christ for us first. Remember, it is loving and it is relational. And so this discipline, we'll go get, get back to the good discipline again. We've got to make sure there's a discipline that leads to death. That's more condemnation. But the discipline of the Lord continues in verse 31 of chapter 15. This discipline is for all of life. It is life-giving and it is sanctifying. It continues, it helps us in our continued growth. There are three ways here, verses 31, verse 32, and verse 33. Number one, verse 31. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Notice the connection. Discipline, knowledge, wisdom. All along, we've been reading the book of Proverbs that talks about wisdom. How do we grow in wisdom? We listen to the instruction of the Lord and we take the discipline of the Lord. That's how we grow in wisdom. There, is, there has never been a wise man, there's never been a wise woman who won't listen to discipline. Not possible. Number two. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Let's look at that first line there. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. What does that mean? Ignoring discipline leads to your own harm. If discipline is what's good for you and you ignore it, you hate yourself. That's kind of hard to hear. But it's true. You hate what is best for you if you don't take the discipline of the Lord. But on the other hand, he who listens to it, he gains intelligence. On one side, discipline, intelligence, wisdom. On the other, rebellion, rejection, stupidity. Number three, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Notice, again, all throughout this book, the fear of the Lord, this loving reverence for God is instruction. And so the fear of the Lord is connected with the discipline of the Lord. What does discipline do to us? It humbles us. God will not honor the proud. We must be humbled for us. And how are we humbled, brothers and sisters? But by discipline. God's sanctifying discipline, that we grow in wisdom, that we be who he created us to be, that we be true humanity after the person of Christ. And if he's got to discipline us to humble us, then bring it on. Because I'd rather have the honor of the Lord than the honor of men. And me feel like I don't need any correction for a moment. Amen? I love what Spurgeon says here, and uh, many of you in this room can say amen with me. Spurgeon says, I have never learned anything of God except by the rod. 
I have forgotten some of the gentle lessons, but when they have been whipped into me, I remember them. He goes on to say, how often has God shaken all the leaves off of our trees? Then we have seen the heavens, which we would never see when the leaves are green. I love that picture. Think about that. In the summertime, the leaves are on display. The, or the, the, the trees are on display. We think how beautiful that tree is. But in the wintertime, when all the leaves have been shaken off, it's the heavens that are on display. This is the Christian life, ladies and gentlemen. We like to think of ourselves as this, 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 this full green tree that everyone should just marvel at. And every time we do, the Lord shakes all of our leaves off, strips us down to our nakedness. Oh, there's a, there's a God up there. There's, I, I am so small and so insignificant. And then the spring comes, and he waters us, and the leaves return to the trees. All right, so let's look at some... Uh, number two, let's look at some discipline in practice. We're going to some practical pra- practice examples here, starting in chapter 17. All right, I warn you, if it has not been personal yet, it's going to get more personal. Chapter 17, verse 10. A rebuke goes deeper into the man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Discipline as we saw before, is what makes one wise. And discipline and the response to it is what separates the way of wisdom and the way of folly, the wise and the fool. Here's who the fool is. Any of you are old enough to know this reference? A fool is like Jean-Claude Van Damme. He can get hit a hundred times with a monkey wrench and still keep coming and think he's invincible. That is a fool. And that is not reality, just like none of his movies are reality. But a wise man, one word goes right to his heart. Which one are you? Why does that one word go straight to the core of a man of understanding? Because he has a contrite heart. Why was it that in the new covenant we must be promised a heart of flesh to replace our heart of stone? Because we're stony-hearted people. I like the way that Charles Bridges says this. He states it this way. A needle pierces deeper into flesh than a sword into stone. That contrite heart, that is what maturity is. When you are disciplined by one word the first time, and that needle pricks directly to your heart. This is why we need to be born again. This is why we need new hearts, because otherwise we are stones. We are rocks that cannot take discipline. We take a hundred blows and keep coming like fools. But church, train your heart. That it would take that word of correction. That it would take that word of instruction that it would be conformed to the word of God. Some of us are still going to have to get hit upside the head again and again and again. Hopefully the number is smaller than 100. And hopefully it gets smaller over time. But that maturity is what we, we, we pray for. Lord, give me discernment and discretion to be disciplined by that one word and not the 100 blows. 
So this leads right into a great exhortation for parents, chapter 19, verse 18. Discipline your son, O parents, implied here, for there is hope. Parents, there is hope. Be steadfast, lovingly, prayerfully. Put your child into the hands of a loving father. Lovingly, prayerfully, look to the hope of life in Jesus Christ. That is their only hope. The second part of this verse sounds weird to our eyes, or our ears. It would sound really weird to our eyes. Um, And do not set your heart on putting them to death. Oh, wait a second. We would never do that. Maybe not. Um, But remember, in that culture, we did a Deuteronomy study not too long ago. And those insubordinate children, rebellious children who would not take the correction of parents, you put them to death. Parents, before you kill your kids because they're disobedient, we'd all be dead. There is hope. Discipline them because your father has disciplined you. Discipline them because you love them and put your hope in in him. So kids, be very thankful for this discipline. Be very thankful you didn't grow up in ancient Israel. Some of you wouldn't make it. I wouldn't make it. But there is hope, parents. Give your children to the Lord. Cry out to your Savior, Jesus Christ, who is your only hope and their only hope. It's a good plug for the children's catechism that we're going to be doing in the fall. That is their only hope. Question number one. All right, next verse. 19. Oh, we just did 19. Yep. All right, uh, verse 25. 19.25. Strike a scoffer, and the simple will learn, will learn, learn prudence. Reprove a man of understanding, and he will gain knowledge. Notice very early on, these are the three categories that we see in Proverbs. You've got the simple, you've got the wise, and you've got the fool. All three are affected by discipline. Notice, each one here receives something from discipline. This is, this is brilliant here. Number one, strike a scoffer. Physically, if needed. Verbally, without question. Strike a scoffer. Why? Because they deserve it. The wicked, the one who shakes his fist at God, absolutely deserves a beating. They will not respond to gentleness. And if you think, well, that's not Christian, that's not loving, that's not Christ-like. Have you seen or read how Jesus speaks to the Pharisees? Whitewashed tombs. Sons of their father, the devil. Dead man's bones. Wicked and perverse. Yeah, those are verbal beatings. Do that publicly. Why? Because the simple will learn prudence. If you rebuke the scoffer publicly, the simple will learn and you'll keep order. A wise man learns from discipline. A wiser man learns from the discipline of others. So rebuke is a good thing. Correction is a good thing, especially for the scoffers and the insubordinate. 
And then it affects the third category too. Reprove a man of understanding and he will gain knowledge. The wise grow wiser still after rebuke. Discipline is a good thing. The scoffers get what they deserve. The simple learn and the wise become wiser. Everyone wins. The only thing that loses in discipline is stupidity. This is why the Bible, and Proverbs especially, promotes discipline. All right, let's move on. Chapter 22, verse 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. All right, so we know that wisdom leads to life. Why do we have to even talk about wisdom? Why do we have to even talk about life? Because our default mode, we are, we are brought forth in iniquity, as David said. We are born foolish. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins. And so everyone who thinks that children are just innocent and perfect and they could never do a bad thing has not been around a child for more than five minutes and has not read this verse or many others. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Children need encouragement. Absolutely. Children need positive reinforcement and instruction. Absolutely. And they need verbal correction for sure. But sometimes they need an attitude adjustment. That's what my mom called it. But the rod of discipline drives it far from them. Why does the world seem so foolish right now? This is what happened when you have spoiled, undisciplined, godless children who grow up to be adults and grow up to teach other adults and lead other adults astray. We're in an undisciplined world because we have several undisciplined generations. We should not be surprised. Christians, it should not be so. Parents who don't want to discipline their children love being their friend or being liked by their children more than they care about their child being mature. One more verse on, as if Jonathan didn't deal with spanking enough, one more. Um, I'm not as excited about it as Jonathan is, though. <laughs> uh, John, <laughs> chapter 23, verse 13 and 14. Glad Josh spoke up on this one. This is for him and I. Uh, 23, verse 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. All right, let's get personal for a moment, though. My brother and I are proof positive of this. All right, although I took the brunt of them, Josh, you're welcome. Um, I was just looking out for you. <laughs> uh, I stand before you today as the poster child for discipline, for the rod and the belt and the stick and the hand and anything else that I deserved. I didn't die. I'm still here. My backside's okay. So spank your children. Just aim, please. <laughs> Little boys know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> you, they won't die, and they might stand before you and preach to you one day. I did not like it at the time, but thank the Lord for discipline because I needed it. But this kind of brings up an important point here. Um, I was talking with Brett earlier this week, and he said, you know, it's important that we must exegete our children. I didn't tell you I was going to, but I, I did quote you. Um, and so we must know whether your child is the one who needs the one word 
or the hundred blows. You must know whether your child is the one who needs the rod of correction or the staff of direction. My brother was the staff, I was the rod. Every parent has at least one of each. And so you must know how to discipline them, just how the Lord disciplines us. There's, there's always the kid who you give them a glare of disapproval, and they're just broken, and they're just done. And then there's the one like me who just take a spanking after spanking, and then it begins to um, become normal. And so spanking works for a time until you get too old and too strong, and it doesn't hurt anymore, and then you just fake cry so you can go outside and play. Just, just me? But the real punishment came when my parents found out that, it, that I will take a spanking every day, but don't make me stay inside. The worst thing you could do is make me look outside and see all my friends playing baseball. Those days when, you know, here's some, there's something called outside that, that kids went to. And that all of the uh, neighborhood kids got on our bikes. We'd find any dirt lot and put three paper plates out and make a baseball field and play all day. And to see my friends play outside, that was the worst punishment ever. So I know kids don't go outside anymore. But when spankings don't work, take their technology away. You might want to take their technology away beforehand. That's, I'm just saying. But no, discipline, it is instructive correction. And don't just do it arbitrarily. Tell them why you're doing it. Just like when we get disciplined by the Lord, don't just say, why are, you, why are you doing this? Why me? Why me? As Spurgeon said, the rod should drive us to the word. Oh, I see, Lord. I've been rebellious and I've been selfish and I've been so consumed with myself that I don't listen to you anymore. Thank you for disciplining me. That's how all of your children should respond and none of them will. Just letting you know. If we understand our own sinful condition, when we embrace the Lord's discipline and our need for it, we won't have any issue disciplining our children or continuing to receive discipline ourselves. All right, let's move on. Chapter 27, verse 5. I got two more, and then we'll get to our final point. Chapter 27, verse 5. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Man, this is simple but profound. This is something that is hard for us. It is not loving to stay silent on sin. It is not loving to bring comfort to someone's rebellion. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. This is why church discipline is public, because it is open and it is loving. It is good for order, and it is good for the person. And it is good for the simple who are watching. We can't be afraid of this. If God speaks so much about his discipline for those he loves, shouldn't we care about discipline for those we love? Not because we want to seem self-righteous or because we want to get even, because we want them to mature. We want them to receive instruction and to grow in wisdom. And there is discernment. You don't always do correction publicly. But this means if my brother is in sin, if my sister is in sin, I talk to them directly, openly, lovingly, because I want them to be reconciled. The last reference here is very complementary to that. Chapter 28, verse 23. 
Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Man, it's so much easier to give a compliment. What did you think of this? How was dinner? It was wonderful. How do you think of, what did you think of whatever that I did that I shouldn't have done? And you're like, ah, it was great. Loving correction is welcomed among brothers. This shows who your friends truly are. Whoever, whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. How many times have we seen this? How many times have I avoided the difficult conversation and things got worse? It's like, ah, it'll eventually solve itself. I'm going to sweep this under the rug. Everything will be fine. And it gets so much worse. But how many times have I had the hard, difficult conversation to put my big boy pants on and go have this conversation and things actually turned out better and the relationship actually deepened? We don't like difficult conversations. Why? Well, because they're difficult. But when we have a conversation that's difficult, speaking the truth in love, it is never a wasted time. Even if the person rejects you, if you stand on truth and you do it because you love the Lord and you love them, your conscience is clear. We are so consumed with what people think about us and how they might respond to us that we lie to one another every day. All right, let's close here in our final point in Hebrews chapter 12. This is the most complete the most uh, exhorting and encouraging and insightful text on discipline. And so this is where we land. Hebrews chapter 12. Hopefully all that was helpful. There's some additional verses at the bottom that I didn't deal with. Uh, you can look at those later. Hebrews chapter 12. So the first thing I want you to see before I read this passage is notice the context of Hebrews chapter 12. Coming off of Hebrews 11, all those who have gone before you, the great men and women of faith, they were running this, this race. So what should you do? Consider them, but most importantly, consider Christ. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the, the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice the foundation of the, of the writer of Hebrews' conversation on discipline is what? The gospel. First, if we have to talk about discipline, we must first talk about Christ. And we talk about Christ's discipline. We've gone through Philippians, talk about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. If you think humanity did not take it easy on Christ and his life was not easy in, in this world, what makes us think ours will be or we will be treated differently? That's why we look to him. He's the founder. He's the perfecter. He found the cross as joy. And he despised the shame. He, he took it. Why? Because the cross led to the crown. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3 continues in the same way. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The promised son of the covenant with David that we read earlier he was disciplined for our endurance. Think about that. He endured 
such hostility we would break so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That is how important discipline is to our Father in heaven. Verse 4, if you think you've got it bad, woe is me, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, you've been disciplined. Yeah, you've been afflicted. They were probably being persecuted. But it hasn't been to the point of blood pouring out of your forehead because you knew what you had to endure. And he did that for you. Put your affliction into perspective. That's why he continues in verse 5. And you have for, or excuse me, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Notice. Gospel, suffering of Christ, the atoning work of Christ, this new covenant that leads to adoption. This familial, loving practice of the discipline of the Lord. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Quotes are two passages that we looked at earlier. Proverbs 3.11, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Psalm 94.12, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Don't think you're exempt from this. Every son. Everyone covered by the blood of Christ, everyone sharing in his inheritance will be disciplined. Why? Because you're a son. He unfolds this here. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline him? Whenever we go through something difficult, challenging, that challenges our sin, that challenges our comfort. God is teaching us why. Because he has adopted us as sons and he loves us. Loving discipline is a benefit of adoption. It is proof of adoption. You don't discipline someone's, someone else's kids. They used to do that. You don't do it anymore. You don't discipline the kid down the street. Because there must be a relationship there. If the Christian life was easy, we would never learn. Do we spend, I want you to think about this for a moment, when we receive the discipline of the Lord, and you know what the discipline of the Lord is. When you are content in your sin, in your rebellion, in your hard-headedness, and you don't want to be corrected. But you need it. Do we spend our time saying, Lord, why am I going through this difficult thing? Why would you do this to me? Aren't I, haven't I been good enough? Or do we ask, Lord, what are you teaching me? Because discipline is instruction. Verse 8, because the writer here anticipates our questions. If you were left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Praise the Lord, he disciplines you. We all participate. If you participate in discipline, join the club, you're an adopted son. You've got the name of the King of Kings written on your new birth certificate. You are adopted into the image of the Son of David, and it is for your glory. We're going to see this connection, guys, in two weeks when we cover the chapters on justification, adoption, and sanctification in the London Baptist Confession. Hope you're there for that in two weeks. Verse 9. Getting all the plugs in today I can. Beside this, 
We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Loving Father's discipline. Should we expect anything different from our Heavenly Father? I love this. For they disciplined us for a short time. Doesn't feel like it in the moment, but it's short. As it seemed best to them. But here's the kicker. Here's the purpose of this whole thing. Why does the Lord discipline? Why is this important? Why spend so much time on it? He disciplines us for our good. Don't stop there. That we may share in his holiness. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. That is why he disciplines us. Our God is holy. And he desires people to be holy like him. That is why he disciplines us. And there is nothing that could be more good for us than for our holy God to want us to be holy like him. He removes the remnant of the old man and makes us into the new. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Ain't that the truth? How many of us look back, as Spurgeon said, and regret those lessons that we got by the rod? We shouldn't. He used that discipline for our training, and I want you to meditate on that, on that this week. How have I taken discipline? Do I see this as peace and righteousness on the other side, or am I only so short-sighted that I only see the difficulty in the moment? Do I praise the Lord for his discipline in my life? Remember from the beginning, biblical discipline is always done in love. God's discipline is always done in covenant. And this discipline, it is corrective instruction for life and godliness. I want to use Revelation 3 as our prayer. Uh, no better than to point to Christ and end with the words of Christ. So I'm going to use Revelation chapter 3, uh, verses 19 through 22 as our prayer, and then I'm going to give you some time to prepare your minds and hearts to approach the Lord's table. Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, through the angel, he says, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I gave you some moments in your seats. Reflect on the discipline of Christ for our discipline. This table is for adopted sons. This table is for those who share an inheritance with Christ. This table is for those who fear the Lord and take discipline. If this is you, this is a joyous reuniting with your Savior and a, and a visible reminder of his work and communion with your brothers and sisters. I'll give you some time, and then I'll direct us to the table.